We pray, Lord God, that you would help us now and help me as well be clear as we think about the deep things of who you are and what you've planned for us and how it is that you know all things, Lord God. It is an amazing thing for us to behold. So, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, if you have been here for the last two sessions or you've listened on SoundCloud or some things like that, um, we've talked about a lot of things in this. We talked about the importance of retrieval, right? We, that was the first session. We talked about how when theologians talk about God, we refer to God's being, God's ontology, in other words. This is just a recap of the last two sessions. God's ontology, who he is in and of himself, even apart from creation. That's what ontology means. It just means the study of being. We talked about God's economy, as David was asking before. The economy of God, which is the, the works of God, aimed towards things that are outside of God. So if God's being refers to who he is in and of himself, even apart from creation, God's economy refers to God's works toward things that are outside of him. So God's being and God's economy refer to things that are ad intra or with reference to the inside. Ad intra is just a Latin term that refers to things inside God. And that ad extra refers to the works of God that are directed, directed to things outside of God. That's basically the first session. And then in the second session, we talk a lot about divine simplicity. Can anyone tell us what divine simplicity means? Divine simplicity. Go, Patrick. He is who he is. What does that mean? That's his name. That's good. So divine simplicity comes from God's name, Exodus 3.14. What does that mean, that he is who he is? It's one, exactly. So inside of God, uh, there, are, there are no divisions in God. When we talk about who God is, everything that is in God is God himself, right? So his love is not something different from his justice or something different from his wisdom, not something different from his holiness, but rather all of the attributes of God are actually contemplated in one another. It's all one thing, right? We talked about how when we think about God being um, independent, He's also eternal. When you talk about him being eternal, he's also omnipresent because eternality means that he's not bounded by space or time. If he's not bounded by space or time, it necessarily follows that he's in all places at the same time, right? So his eternality actually presupposes his omnipresence and vice versa, right? Um, we talked about how if he's infinite, he's also eternal. So we, we make these distinctions when we talk about God, his, we talk about infinity first, his eternality first, his knowledge first, or whatever. We talk about distinctions in God, but there are no divisions in God. Remember that? So God's simplicity means that he's not made of parts. Uh, when, another implication of God's simplicity is that he doesn't change, right? How does simplicity and God's changing relate to one another? Hey, this. Can anybody tell us? Remind us about how if God is simple and he's not composed of parts, why does it follow that he's not changeable? 
This is also session two material. Well, let's think about it this way. This is, again, it's just some recap from session two. Um, if you're made of parts, uh, let's say physical parts, right? You can, so you and I, we all have physical parts to ourselves. We have parts of our bodies, right? We can change in the sense where we can develop parts so we, we grow taller, or we can lose parts. So let's say if we broke a limb or something like that, right? So we are losing an arm or we're growing with respect to some property of ours, right? If God is without parts and God is himself simple, he's one, he's fully eternal and perfect, he can't, by definition, grow because growing is putting on new parts or losing some parts, right? So if God changes, a change is either in taking a new part or in losing a part. Um, God doesn't change with respect to anything because he's not composed of parts. If he develops, that means he's changing, right? And a perfect thing, by definition, doesn't change. So notice how eternality and unchangeability are actually part and parcel of one thing. If God is eternal, he's also unchangeable because eternality means he doesn't develop, nor does he uh, grow with regard to time. So he's unchangeable. And if he's one thing, there is no divisions in God, there's no sense in which he grows in knowledge either. And there's no sense in which he changes from one act to another. Because if you're changing from one act to another, you're stopping one part of yourself and you're acting in another part of yourself on a different moment of time or in a different part of you, right? Same with God's knowledge. We talked about that as well last week. Think about how you as human beings grow in your knowledge. As you're taking this cohort, as you're listening to the sermons, you've went through college, you can think about your development in education as taking on new parts of knowledge into you, right? Whereas before you didn't know that 2 plus 2 equals to 4, after pr primary school, you learned that 2 plus 2 equals to 4. In other words, your knowledge develops. Your knowledge grows from one part to a greater part. Your knowledge is from one proposition to another proposition. Notice that God doesn't know the same way that you know. God doesn't know in a way where he infers one proposition from another proposition. God's knowledge doesn't grow. Because if his knowledge grows, that means you're, you're also denying that he's simple. Because if everything that is in God is God, and, it, and if God is not made of parts, his knowledge can't be a part of the whole, and his knowledge can't grow in the sense where he's taking on new parts of knowledge into himself. Does that make sense? Again, this, we, we covered this at quite some length last uh, two weeks ago now. I know it's been quite some time, so I think it's good for us to just remember and get reminded of some of these things. So we talked, therefore, a lot about God being simple, God's knowledge not changing. God knows intuitively, in other words, and not by parts. He doesn't develop. We know by parts. We develop. God does not develop. God doesn't change. So when we, when we talk about God, we talked about how we talk about him analogically. Analogical knowing. Can anyone remind us what it means to know analogically? It's like two weeks now, so it's like 
A lot of time has passed. Sure. So divine accommodation, right? So, so the way you talk to, so this is an analogy that a lot of theologians have used, the way nurses talk to babies or the way mothers talk to babies. There's a sense in which you got to lisp. you got to make face signals. you got to talk to the baby in a way that a baby might comprehend you. So you never actually talk to the baby directly. You're not giving lectures to the baby, but you have to accommodate to the baby's capacities, right? And in much the same way, God actually takes up human language to reveal himself to us. Um, notice that God doesn't speak to us. I mean, God in and of himself, in God's being, ad intra, in and of God's life, right? Does the Father, Son, and the Spirit talk to one another in English? No. Nor do they talk to one another in Hebrew or Greek, right? Be why? Because language presupposes time. Language presupposes our way of communicating. So the fact that God has revealed himself to us means that God has stooped down to our level, taken up human language to reveal himself to us in terms of space and time, right? In terms that we might understand him. So though human language reveals something about God because God takes up human language to talk to us and ultimately human body, Christ, we understand that human language doesn't tell us in a one-to-one -one correspondence what God is really like. So there's a sense in which human language discloses God to us, but at the same time, God remains in part hidden from us, right? So we know by analogies, we don't know by identity. Remember how analogical knowing is not univocal? Neither is it equivocal. We know God by analogical thinking, not by univocal thinking, nor by equivocal thinking. Univocal thinking means that your language about God, your talk about God, it matches exactly who he is. So in univocal thinking, God's love is like your love, just in a higher degree. It means the same thing, right? God's justice is like your justice. It means the same thing. Univocal thinking means that there's one sense. When you talk about God, your language refers to God in a one-to-one -one correspondence. Equivocal thinking is the opposite of that. Equivocal thinking means that your language about God doesn't map onto who God is at all. You know, when you think about the fallacy of equivocation, have you heard of that before? I used this analogy last week. Uh, when, I, when I use the word bar, for example, and I say, uh, Disa went to a bar, or Disa passed the bar, sorry, that's, that's, the, that's the example that I always use. Disa passed the bar, all right? And then uh, Rijal, Here's that, Disa passed the bar, and he thinks the best of Disa. <laughs> and so he's thinking, Disa went to school, and she passed the bar, as in, like, she passed all the tests. She graduated from school. That's what Rija thinks of when he, when he hears the proposition, Disa passed the bar, that's what he thinks of. But when Ronald says, Disa passed the bar, she's thinking the worst of her and saying she's been bar hopping, so she passed from one bar to another. Notice, I'm using the word bar there in two very different ways. In fact, two equivocal ways, right? One sense of bar is Disa passing tests. Another sense of bar is Disa drinking, right? Passing from one bar to another. So the word bar is the same word, but used in two different ways. And you're equivocating if you've used the same words, but in two very different, mutually <laughs> contradictory ways. 
So in equivocal knowing, you would say, have you heard this before? See, you're doing so much theology, you're putting God in a box. You know, God is not like your theological thinking. You're, 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 you're doing this theology with all your logic, with all your system building, right? God isn't like us. So you can't really talk about God meaningfully. You don't, you don't talk about God. You feel God. You don't, you don't know God. You see what I mean? Equivocal reasoning leads to a kind of mysticism where you can't talk about God at all and any talk about God reduces God. And univocal thinking leads to a kind of rationalism. And this is still review. Univocal thinking says God is very much like who you are. So you don't need God to reveal himself to you for you to know God. If you want to know what God is like, just inspect your own intuitions about what God must be like. Equivocal thinking leads to a kind of mysticism where any talk of God is seen to reduce what God is like. Does that make sense? So they're wary of all theology. Um, let's not talk about God at all. God is so much bigger than us that any talk about God is unreliable because we can't really know who God really is like anyway. So this leads to a kind of mysticism. You know God, you don't really know God. Um, and if you talk as if you know God, you're really fooling yourself. This leads to a kind of rationalism. Analogical thinking cuts through both. It's kind of in the middle, but it also cuts through both. It says that you can know God fully and reliably, but not exhaustively, right? You can know God reliably, but not exhaustively. And in analogical thinking, you can know God, but not because of rational ways, as if you can just speculate about what God must be like through your own logical thinking, but because God himself has chosen to reveal himself. He stooped down to reveal himself to you. So if you remember the, the, the two circles that I drew, right? So this is God, this is you. And God actually stoops down to reveal himself to your level so that you can know him reliably, well enough, but not exhaustively. Univocal thinking presumes that you and God are in the same circle of existence, same being. Equivocal thinking says that you and God never overlap. There's such a division. Notice I use a division sign. Okay, so Again, I used that joke last week too. But anyway, there's a division between you and God in such a way where you and God never really know one another. So your language never really maps onto God. Univocal thinking assumes that you and God are in the same sphere of being. So you can know God intuitively by reason alone. Analogical thinking presumes the chasm of being between you and God, but God reveals himself to you such that you know him analogically. You know him well enough. Reliable, it's reliable knowledge in the Bible. But you notice that the Bible is in human language accommodated to you. So there's a sense in which there's much about God that you don't know. Much about God is still in mystery. So we expect there to be mysteries and paradoxes when we come to know God, but we, we can truly know God. And that's where we ended up last week, okay? Let me just repeat where I ended off last week as well. Um, so, for example, the word presence. Do you guys remember this from, from two weeks ago? Presence. So if I, if I say that God is present here, when I use the word presence and he's present here, do I use that word analogically or univocally? When I say God is present here, Ferdy is present here. Is Ferdy present here in the same way God is present here? 
No. Right? No. But at the same time, can I say that there is an analogy between the two? Fruity is present here kind of like how God is present here. Yes, right? So there's an analogy. Fruity is really here. God is really here. But there's also discontinuity. God is present here in a way that Fruity, uh, in a way that is different than the way Fruity is present here. You see what I mean? So again, let me use this analogy. Let me just drive it home so we remember where we left off, okay? So if I, if, if I, if I say I'm present here, and Patrick is present here. That's, that word, the use, the use of the word present in that sense is univocal. Notice that, right? It's the same presence, right? Hence, I cannot sit where Patrick is sitting. Because if I'm present where he's present, exactly in the same spot, my presence violates his presence. Why? Because it's the same kind of presence, you see. If it's a univocal kind of presence, then my presence contradicts Patrick's presence when it's in the same space and time. You see what I mean? But notice when I say that God is present, he can be fully present where Patrick is present and not contradict or violate that presence. So we can say Patrick is present there and God is fully there too. It's not like a part of God is there, but God is fully there and fully everywhere at the same time, right? So his presence doesn't contradict our presence precisely because it's a different kind of presence. It doesn't violate our presence. You could be present where you are without violating your existence. Okay? So the Bible in Acts 17, for example, says, in him we move and live and have our being. So he's present where we are. It doesn't contradict our presence because it's an analogical presence. So you can say you know of God's presence. It's something that you know. It's something real. But at the same time, you don't really fully know what that means, right? Now, where I left off last week is uh, think about God's control, right? If I, uh, so if, I, if I'm controlling somebody and notice that my control is univocal with that person's control of his own life, my control necessarily contradicts that person, you see? So if I start to control Tim, I'm contradicting his control of himself. Maybe I control him by coercing him. Maybe I'll control him by implanting a microchip in his brain. Maybe I'll control him by putting a gun to his head. I don't know. But because my control and his control are in the same level of reality, right? My control violates his control. Notice that? But God's control is not like our control. It's analogical to our control, but not identical to our control. So, God could control everything that happens without at the same time violating the real control that we have over our lives. So, God's control doesn't violate our control, but rather, in a sense, establishes it. God can control us in such a way that doesn't make us robots, but actually gives us responsibility. And my favorite analogy for that is the way Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. And I've used this analogy quite a lot if you've been through my sermons or these sort of contexts. Why did Romeo kill himself? DeVito, what are you going to say? He's stupid. Okay, good. He's stupid. Like, if he just waited two more minutes, he would have seen that Juliet would have woken up, right? He didn't get the letter. So, Romeo was stupid. 
So that's a real reason, right? If you, if you, don't, if you deny that, you're, you're missing the point of the story, right? But if you also ask on a deeper level, why did Romeo kill himself? Because Shakespeare planned it and written it to be so, and that's why it's such a beautiful story, in a sense. It's a beautiful tragedy, right? Now, if you ask the question, why did Judas betray Jesus? In one sense, you could say, because God written it to be so. But because Acts 4, 27, 28, he was betrayed according to God's predestined plan and foreknowledge. But yet at the same time, if you also ask the question, why did Judas betray Jesus? What else could you say? Greed. He wanted money. He loved money over his love of Jesus, you see. So there's a real sense in which at the level of history, there are real secondary causes. But at the same time, in the level of authorship, there is an authorial control that doesn't violate the real control and secondary causes that we have in history. Does that make sense? Because God's authorship is analogical to our quote-unquote authorship. Does that make sense? That's where we left off last week. And that's kind of a payoff of this analogical view of how you talk about God. Yes. Do you mean that God planned it or did you just, yes. God planned it. So uh, that's, that's, a, that's a long question. As well as I would say it's so that Jesus would die on the cross for the salvation of many. So it's part of his predetermined plan that he would be betrayed by his own. And interestingly, Jesus also quotes the Psalms. Um, I can't remember which Psalm it was, but, but Jesus would say, it's so that the Psalms would be fulfilled that the one who shared bread with me would betray me, for example. So it was predicted long ago. And if you read Acts 4, 27 to 28, it also says that he was handed over to Pontius Pilate by the Jews, by the Gentiles, according to the definite plan of God. It depends on what you meant by the word never. If you meant by, was it necessary that Judas betrayed Jesus? It depends also what you mean by the word necessary. Was it absolutely necessary that it had to be Judas? It had to be him who betrayed him? No. I would say, according to the plan of God, yes. Because of how it was written, how he has decreed things to be. But he could have decreed it in a different way. Could God have decreed redemption in a different way? Possibly, we don't know. But given the way that he has planned it, it was necessary that these things would unfold the way that they did. So I'm using the word necessary cautiously, right? It's just like, it's not as if God looked at what could have happened in history and said, oh man, I, I can't do it any other way. But he did choose it this way. And given that he chose it this way, these parts of the story had to fit the way they... So the Messiah, for example, had to come from the line of David. Could it have been someone else named John? <laughs> it could have been, right? But there was a sense in which, because God had written it that way, it had to be that the Messiah had to come from David. No. And yes. 
No and yes, uh, in the sense where God doesn't coerce us by his plan, but at the same time, God controlled everything in such a way where it doesn't violate our control, but his control uh, means that history is set. Free from coercion, so God doesn't coerce us, like my presence, I mean, God doesn't violate my presence, but not free in the sense where we can veer off of God's plan. So if you want to talk in terms of just possibility, like was it logically possible that God, I mean that, that Judas was not greedy and Judas couldn't have taken the money? Yes. But is it possible that Judas, given the plan of God, not betrayed Jesus? I would say no. Does it make sense? So in terms of pure logical possibility, yes, Judas could have done otherwise. But given the decree of God, Judas couldn't have. Uh, yes. So nothing happens outside of God's plan. So again, you're also you, we would also kind of have to talk about what we mean by God's will or God's plan, right? So. Christians are called to make decisions not on the basis of what God's plan is, but on the basis of his commands. So we know in a sense where if we are sinning, we are going outside of the will of God. But at the same time, if we are sinning, uh, we know that nothing happens outside of God's plan. But we're not called to speculate what God's plan might be. We're just called to obey God's commandments. So let, let so let me just camp here for a moment, okay? Is that all right with you guys? You, it seems like you're all in, kind of interested in this, even though it's kind of veering off the notes. It's okay. So turn your Bibles to Acts 4, 27 to 28, just really quickly. Acts 4, 27 to 28. I'll turn there with you. So this, I think, brings together many of the threats that we were talking about. So look at what it says here. For truly in the city, this is Acts 4.27, for truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So remember Herod decreed that he would be sent off to Pilate, and Pontius Pilate ultimately gave him over to the, the, the punishment, along with the Gentiles, so the Roman soldiers, and the peoples of Israel, the Pharisees had plotted against Jesus, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there's that hand and plan, right? So it's, it's to invoke this, this sense where God really did actively planned that Jesus would be handed over by Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, had predestined to take place, so determined beforehand, right? Um, and notice... After that, uh, if, you, if you look down, 
sorry, to actually, no, 28, to do whatever you have in plan to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and sign on wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So notice, Peter, you would have thought, if in verse 27 and 28, you would have thought, okay, so this had happened according to the plan and hand of predestined plan and hand of, of God, you would have thought that he would say, see, everything's going to be okay. We don't have to do anything because everything is predestined, right? This happened according to God's plan. So even the worst things that happened to Jesus was not outside of God's plan. You would have think that who cares about the threats? You know, he, he, he could have said easily, everything happens according to the plan of God, so we don't have to do anything. We could be passive since it's fatalistic anyway, but he doesn't do that. He instead, he says, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So somehow he's saying, even though everything did happen according to his plan and purpose, there's a sense in which that plan actually enables you to do things rather than causes you to be passive. He's not denying human responsibility, but it's also at the same time affirming God's predestination. And what I tried to, and this is ultimately going to be a mystery and a paradox, but what I tried to explain is God's control, because it's analogical to our control, doesn't violate our control. So there's the level of, this is now back in your notes, at the bottom of page two, I talked about authorial causation and creaturely causation. And it's all analogical. So if God, so if this is, this is history, so this is Judas, Pilate, Herod, you know, leading up to the cross, and then now it's Peter preaching, right, to these people. There's a real sense in which there's a link of creaturely causes. One thing caused another, and one thing caused another, and one thing caused another, one thing caused another, one thing caused another. So let's just say one of the events that caused another thing was Judas's greed. Judas picked up 30 pieces of silver, betrayed Jesus, handed it off to Herod, and then Pilate, and then the cross happened, and so forth and so on. Now, that's a link of historical causes. You see what I mean? Historical and creaturely causes. But there's another sense in which God's hand was behind everything. And this is... God's causation that doesn't violate these creaturely real secondary causes. So Romeo was stupid, but Shakespeare wrote everything. It's both true. Judas was greedy and God wrote everything. It's both true. And what happened in the incarnation was God wrote himself into history. It's, as, it's almost as if Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. Does that make sense? And became a character within his own play. So that's the best analogy that we can give with respect to God's control and our control. I think that's, that's the parameters of where the biblical storyline goes. I think if you start to say that things happen on the creaturely level that wasn't planned by God, that means something happened independently of God. And we can't make sense of that. Because God is behind everything. There's no sense in which things are independent of God, right? <laughs> And if you say that things happen outside of God and then God reacts to it, then you would have to say that God changed. God saw a particular thing that happened. He learned from it and then he reacted. He changed according to it. That means God is no longer simple because that means God learned something new. He took a human event into account 
and then he changed his plan according to it. That means he changed from one plan to another, which means that God's parts changed. His plan changed from one plan to another plan. So God's no longer simple. He's no longer, he is who he is. You see, and we talked again about that also last week. So it's all connected. You see that? Yes. Yes. Because the headache, even the headache part is not violated by God. That, that might be one way you could look at it, yeah. Especially for those who are um, elected and chosen by God to be, to be indwelled by his Holy Spirit. Right? So there, 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 there's a lot, a lot of times I think we view God in a univocal way. So it's almost as if God... Is in the same, again, same circle of being as us. And so there's a quid pro quo relationship. God, if I do this, God might do this way or that way. You see what I mean? It's almost as if God is in the same playing field as us. Um, like God is trying to predict your moves, but he's not really sure where you might go. And then he might plan and react more to what you... So if, if you make God that way, he's, he's fundamentally the same being as you. He's just a greater version of yourself, right? He's just playing chess with you, so to speak. But remember what I said last week too, God's simplicity is actually what, um, what tells us that he's utterly different from us because he's not made of parts. He's not changeable. He doesn't develop. He doesn't react. He doesn't make decisions according to things outside of him. If the Bible says that he is who he is, that means everything that he does has his foundation in himself. He loves because he loves. He doesn't react to anything outside of himself. He also knows because he knows. It's not as if God has to look at something outside of him and then he knows that thing. That's how we know. If I saw Disa came into the class just now, right? I learned that Disa came into the class. My knowledge conforms to the things outside. So things outside inform me, right? So I learn something new. But God's knowledge is not like that. It's the reverse. He knows not because of something outside of him informs him, but rather he knows and because he knows, the thing outside comes to be. And that's where we're going to go today. Okay? Does that sort of make sense? Okay, let me, let, me, let me just move on really quickly. And we might get to Jacob Arminius. We might not. But we'll see. Okay? So here is a little diagram. On God's knowledge. So remember, we're, we're using technical terms and Latin jargon to retrieve some of the church's ways of talking about God. And it's, been, it's actually been you know, a normative way for the church to talk about God. In other words, if you don't talk about God in these ways, the church actually had, had talked about him in these ways. You're, you're, you're outside of what the church has always taught in ages past. And remember, we talked about how we forgot the, our, our own heritage. So when we think about God and his knowledge, there's God in and of himself ad intra. Okay? So he has in and of himself all knowledge. He knows everything that he, in other words, is. He knows everything that he is and therefore everything that he could do. 
there's even a human analogy here, right? There's a sense in which only you know yourself. You know what you are like, and you know what you're able to do. Okay? So God, before the foundation of the world, before creation ever existed, knew himself and therefore knew all possibility. Because God is the source of all possibility, right? Like, God could do everything that he could do, and there are things that he can't do. What are things that he can't do? He can't lie, for example. He, he can't lie. Um, he can't sin. He can't contradict himself. He's fully consistent with himself, right? So there are things that God can't do, but things that he can't do are not limitations of who he is, but rather simply consistent expressions of who he is, right? If he started to lie, that means he's not God. You see what I mean? So God knows all possibility. He knows everything that he could do, everything he knows that is in his power to do. So God's power and God's knowledge are deeply related. What he knows is he knows himself perfectly, and because he knows himself perfectly, he knows what is in his power to do. He knows all possibilities. So what theologians have called this inner knowledge of God, his pure knowledge of himself, and all of the things that he's able to do, is God's archetypal knowledge. Archetypal knowledge. Arc just means the foundation, the beginning point, his pure, the purest, right? The pinnacle, uh, the, 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 the fountain of all knowing. He, is, he, his, he knows himself perfectly, and therefore he knows everything that he's able to do perfectly. All right? That's archetypal knowledge. Another way to talk about this is it's his necessary knowledge or his natural knowledge. That's how the old theologians have talked about it. I could give you a lot of citations, but I won't. Just trust me on this. This is, this is just how, how we've talked about it. His necessary knowledge or his natural knowledge, okay? So why is it called necessary? Because God is necessarily who he is. God is unchangeable. God is eternal. God is simple. So he's by definition who he is. This is just who he necessarily is. He's necessarily Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is not possible for God not to be eternal. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. It, it is not possible that God is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's just who he necessarily is. He is um, self-defining and self-explanatory, right? He defines who he is. He is who he is. He's necessarily who he is. That comes from his name as he reveal himself to, to Moses. That's just who he is, his necessary knowledge. It's, it's what he knows himself to be, and he's always eternally known himself to be that way. He necessarily exists. He's necessarily love. He's necessarily Trinitarian. And he necessarily knows all that he is able to do. In other words, he knows all possibility. And then, so if his necessary natural knowledge it's his perfect knowledge of himself and his perfect knowledge of what could take place, what he could uh, plan, what he could do. There's this, when he, again, remember that when we're talking about God, this is all analogical. It's not as if there's a point in time where he's planning and then he's like drawing up a diagram. There's no point in that, right? Because God's eternal, right? There's just no 
before he created, there's after. Technically, God is eternal. So remember, even last week, we talked about the mode of signifying and the things signified. I would commend you to listen to that again. I can't review that again. But there's a sense in which, so God takes all the things that he could do and know, and he plans and he chooses, he freely chooses to know a certain portion of that to bring it about. So out of all the things that God could do, out of all the things that God could possibly bring about, he chooses this limited set of possibilities and chooses to decree it to bring it about, to bring it out extra, to, br- to create it into existence. You see what I mean? So this is called his ectypal knowledge. Or also, it could also be referred to as his free knowledge. Why was it free? Because out of all the very many possibilities from his power of what he could do, he chose that he would create this one. So he knew all of the characteristics, all the possibilities that he could choose to create. He knew that he could have chosen to create Ronald with black hair. But he also knew that he could have chosen to create Ronald with, with blonde hair. All right? But he freely chose to know Ronald as someone with black hair. So he freely chose it to bring it about that Ronald would have black hair. And so notice, he freely chose to know Ronald as Ronald with black hair. Does that make sense? So his free knowledge and his free will, because I think only God has true free will, is what? They're connected. What he freely knows, what he freely will bring about are one thing. Remember the analogy that I, that I gave just now, right? If I, my knowledge is on the basis of the things outside of me and I learn of it and then I come to know it, right? I meet uh, Jenny and then I, the first time I met Jenny, I'm like, okay, now I know Jenny. So my knowledge has to conform to the thing outside, right? God's knowledge is the reverse. God knows something and then it comes forth as the thing outside. And notice when I know Jenny, my knowledge of her is a faint reflection of who Jenny really is. But the things outside, with respect to God, are a faint reflection of God's knowledge of it. God knows you better than you know yourself, right? God knows creation, uh, and his knowledge of creation is, is a pure knowledge in a way that all of creation is just a faint analogy of. My knowledge of you is a faint analogy of who you are, whereas the things outside of God are a faint analogy of what God knows it to be. Okay, that's a fundamental understanding of divine simplicity as well, right? If God is not composed of parts, he doesn't learn something new and then comes to know it. That's him taking on a new part, you see. But rather, the things outside are a faint reflection, a faint replica of what God's knowledge of it to be is. I hope that's mind-blowing. Okay, if that isn't mind-blowing, I don't know what is. Just, just, God doesn't know things the way you are. You might think that God knows things the way that you are. You're still thinking univocally. Even his knowledge and your knowledge are analogically and not univocally related, okay? So out of this free knowledge, maybe you can also think of this in terms of his plan or his decree. God decreed things to be and then they come forth as creation. 
Um, and theologians have argued that this, this, there's two layers of equitable knowledge. This is his, his, the fonts or the decree or the source. And then this is how God's free and decreed knowledge comes to become uh, what theologians have called the, the lake or the lacus, which, which is just that what happens in history is the unfolding or the collection, so to speak, of what God had decreed um, in eternity past. So if this is the source of everything that comes to pass, this is how everything that comes to pass is unfolded throughout history. Um, level of secondary causes, level of primary causes. Okay? And so what we know, so, so if, if, if let's, again, I'm, I'm kind of putting a lot in this diagram. So let's say that this is now a human being, right? God freely knows this human, let's, let's call this person Adam. God knew Adam in eternity past. He chose to decree that Adam would come to be. Because he freely chose to will Adam to be, he freely chose to know Adam to be, Adam came to be, right? And what Adam knows about God, this is uh, what Adam knows about God, actable knowledge of man. It's a faint replica of what God had chosen to reveal. So um, that's the basic diagram, and that's the meaning of the diagram in front of you. So if, if you turn back to the bottom of page two and just read what Van Til had said again, we read this two weeks ago, but I think this is worth re-emphasizing. The Christopher Holmes passage before that is also worth reading in your own time later. But notice what Van Til is saying here. I try to think God's thoughts after him. That is to say, I try as a redeemed covenant creature of the triune God to attain as much coherence as I, being finite and sinful, can between the facts of the universe. God's revelation is clear, but it is clear just because it is God's revelation and God is self-contained light. Self-contained is just another word of saying he's independent. My system is therefore an analogical reinterpretation of the truth that God has revealed about himself and his relation to man through Christ and scripture. I construct my system by means of a variety of gifts that God has created within me. Among these gifts is that of concept formation. And that's just a fancy way of saying my system or this little theology that I have in my head is a, is a, is a vague replica or what Van Til calls a reinterpretation of what God has chosen to reveal. You see that? And what God has chosen to reveal is freely chosen out of his necessary knowledge. So if you want to think about it as a three-step process, God, who is pure being and has pure knowledge, necessary knowledge in and of himself, chose by his free will to know a decree, to plan a decree. That decree is the basis of everything that exists. And everything that exists is a rough, is, is a is a is a unfolding of what that decree is, and that He chosen to reveal Himself to us. And our knowledge of what He has revealed to us is a is a vague 
replica, as a vague reinterpretation of what God has chosen to reveal by himself. Does that make sense? Necessary knowledge to free knowledge to reveal knowledge. Necessary, free, revealed. Put it that way. Necessary knowledge, free knowledge to reveal knowledge. Any questions on that? David. In a sense, everything is, but, but if you do that univocally, it would destroy any sense that creatures cause anything. So it's not as if God is the primary cause behind everything, and so therefore there's no such thing as secondary causes. But God's primary causation doesn't violate, but establishes secondary causes. No. No, God never makes... You're thinking of a univocal sense of cause. Right? So when, when Romeo killed himself, can you say that... Uh, if, if Romeo killed himself, it's truly suicide. You can't say it's homicide by Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare wrote it to be. Right? <coughs> It's suicide. It's, he actually killed himself. Right? You're, you're actually affirming that Romeo has real choices to make and he has real responsibility and the story is real. Like, Romeo killed himself. And that's why it's called suicide. By definition, suicide is you taking your own life. So, yeah. Uh... Well, I mean, you could say it that way, but I think I think you're still slippery. You're, you're, it's, it's slippery there because you're, I, I feel like you're still making it like a univocal sense of making, right? In a sense, in a, in a real way, God didn't make Romeo do anything. In a real way, Romeo really chose to kill himself. Like, God didn't have to coerce him, you see? God didn't make Romeo do anything. Shakespeare didn't make Romeo do anything in the sense where he coerced him. Yeah. So it's always a two-level causation. Yeah. How are we doing? Okay, let's take a break for five minutes. Let me just say, we might or may not get to Jacob Arminius. But um, Jacob Arminius, I want to say later, um, he's not reformed. So he believes the opposite of what I believe. Okay? So that's why we're going to go through... Um, quote-unquote, someone who is in opposition to the Reformed faith. Um, as an example of someone contrary to the Reformed faith. But because Jacob Arminius is still um, in the era of orthodoxy, or he learned from an era where these theological terms are common within the church, I wanted to just say that Jacob Arminius is still closer to orthodoxy than most 
churches are today because we've forgotten our past. Does that make sense? That's where we wanted to go with Jacob Arminius. We might not get to Jacob Arminius after all, but if, if we do, that's where we're, we're going with that. But I do want, I think that discussion of God's necessary and free knowledge is so important that we want to make sure that we get clear on it. Okay? So let's take a five-minute break and then we'll come right back. So we're going to continue on. Now we're recording. Um, we're going to continue on. So notice that there are, again, as I talked about it, at least three layers to God's knowledge, right? There's his necessary knowledge or natural knowledge, his free knowledge, and his revealed knowledge, okay? So like I said before, God knows things not the way that you would know things, but rather God knows things intuitively, and things outside conform to what he knows. When I know somebody, like I say, when, I, when I say I know Tazar, I have to know him by him coming into my life and then my knowledge conforms to the things outside. God's knowledge is the opposite. He doesn't know things in conformity to the things outside, but rather because he knows them first, the things outside come to be. So what he freely chooses to be is what he freely knows to be. What God knows in creation is because he freely chose to know it first. So he doesn't react or comes to know things outside of him, but rather things outside of him come to be because he first knows them. Okay? So notice then, what we're trying to affirm is completely in line with God's divine simplicity. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself to know that thing outside of him. Notice what it says in Romans 11:33 to 36. This is just one text among many. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? This is right below the diagram in page three. So notice the rhetorical question there. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or, or literally, you might, you might be able to think about who has been his counselor as who has been his teacher? Who has taught God anything? No one. Or who has given a gift to him that he must be repaid? No one. And notice here, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So everything that exists are from him and through him. Notice the implications of that. I know Timothy because from Timothy, I know Timothy. But God knows you because not because he learns from you, but rather it's from him that you come forth. So in Westminster Confession 2.2, this is a confessional document that Covenant City Church holds to and a, a confessional document of Reformed theology, Reformed orthodoxy and Protestantism. He says, God is alone, in and unto himself, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made. He is the alone fountain of all beings. So notice the word fountain is fonts here, which I drew on the diagram. He's the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. That's quoting Romans 11. And has the most sovereign dominion over them. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing to, is to him contingent or uncertain. There is, in other words, with regard to God's knowledge of what comes to pass, nothing contingent, nothing uncertain, and he doesn't learn from anything outside of himself but rather the reverse is the case. Everything that is outside of him comes to be because God first knows it. 
God's foreknowledge, in other words, is the foundation of what comes to pass. When you think about God's foreknowledge or God's knowledge of the future, don't you normally think that God could look upon the future and kind of passively, you know, visualize the future, right? That's how we normally come of foreknowledge. That's how we normally think about foreknowledge, right? But notice if you think about foreknowledge in that way, that means he is dependent on something independent and outside of him for him to know the future. But foreknowledge in biblical terms is actually the opposite, that God first knew it, and because God first chose to know it, it comes to pass. Does that make sense? What he freely chooses to know is what he freely wills to be. And nothing comes to pass without him first freely choosing to know it. So there's a nice quote right below the Westminster Confession 2.2 there by Herman Boving, who's a Dutch theologian in the 19th to 20th century. He says this, and he's just summarizing really all of Christian orthodoxy uh, up till a certain point. He says, God knows things not by observation. So what is he denying? He doesn't know things by observing and looking upon things outside of him and him learning from it, but from and of himself. Notice that? He knows things out of his first knowledge first. He knows things because he first knew it. He knows because he knows. He is who he is. Notice it's always reiterating the name of God. God knows things not by observation, but from and of himself. Our knowledge is posterior. Posterior just means after the fact. We know after the fact. It presupposes their existence and is derived from it. So notice what I said before. I know Tazar because I derive my knowledge from him. It presupposes its existence first, right? I observe him and then I come to know it. But not so with God, Bavink is saying. His knowledge is from and of himself. See, exactly the opposite is true of God's knowledge. He knows everything before he or it or she exists. God is the creator of all things. He thought them before they existed. The utter independence of his knowledge is a corollary of his aseity. What does aseity mean from, la- from two weeks ago? Aseity. Fully sufficient. Independence. Aseity just means independence. Um, aseity just means from himself, independence. He's fully sufficient. He's self-explanatory. He thought them before they existed. The utter independence of his knowledge is a corollary of his aseity or independence. He's not dependent on anything outside of himself. He knows all things in and of and by himself. For that reason, his knowledge is undivided, simple, unchangeable, eternal. So his knowledge, because his knowledge is identical to who he is, is simple, just like who he is as simple. It's not divisible. He doesn't come to know things and comes to not know things. He doesn't learn of things. He knows all things instantaneously, simultaneously from eternity. All things are eternally present to his mind's eye. Consequently, strictly speaking, one cannot speak of foreknowledge in the case of God. With him, there are no distinctions of time. Right? So foreknowledge can't be seen as if God is in the past who's looking towards the future and then learning the future from looking at it passively. Foreknowledge, rather, is simply God willing it to be. God freely willing for it to come to pass. And notice what Boving says God's knowledge is like. And he knows things instantaneously, simultaneously, from all eternity. And all things are eternally present to his mind's eye. 
Notice that. Eternally present to his mind's eye. That means in God, there's no before and after. No development in knowing. He knows things in one moment intuitively, instinctively. We can't really comprehend how that is, but that is the case. It's, it's in other words, an analytic knowledge. It's, it's a knowledge by virtue of simply observing from himself. And so Van Til says right below that, analytic knowledge in distinction from synthetic knowledge means knowledge that is not gained by reference to something that exists without the knower. God knows himself not by comparing and contrasting himself with anything, not even non-being outside himself. He knows himself by one simple eternal act of vision. In God, therefore, the real is the rational, and the rational is the real. Now, what does he mean by that? God knows things analytically, not synthetically. Let me just spend a few minutes on this. He knows things analytically, not synthetically. And analytically, Van Til is saying, means that you know something not by comparing and contrasting himself with anything, not even non-being outside himself. So remember two weeks ago, I used this analogy, right? If I say that uh, Davida is a nice person, how do you know that she is a nice person? Well, you would have to be comparing her to something outside of herself. There's a sense in which you're always making synthetic or relative definitions. So I say she's nice in comparison to John or Tim, you see. So you're making, how do you know what niceness is? You need a standard outside of Davida for you to know that she's nice. She conforms to that external thing, you see. How do you know that um, Patrick is good at physics? It means, at least, that his knowledge conforms to the physical laws outside of him. Right? He knows it well. His knowledge really is in correspondence to or in conformity with that which is outside of himself. It's synthetic. right? It's synthetic. It's not analytical. Patrick needs to come to the physical world to learn physics. God, however, is the foundation of everything else. So he doesn't come to know things outside of him, but simply by inspecting himself. He has intuitive, analytical knowledge. There is an analogy of this in the realm of philosophy. Let me just take a few minutes to, to camp on this. What is an analytic definition in philosophy? An analytic definition means is that it, it, it's something that you know by virtue of defining the term itself. So if I say something like this, bachelor. How would you define bachelor? It's not a trick question. <laughs> what's, what's a bachelor? Still single, right? Unmarried. Unmarried individual, okay? If I just say bachelor is an unmarried individual. So if I say a bachelor is an unmarried person, this is an analytic definition, why? Because if I'm telling you that a bachelor is unmarried, I'm not telling you anything new about the word bachelor because that's what bachelor means. So technically, for you to know what a bachelor means, you don't need anything outside of the word bachelor for you to tell you what it means. 
All you need to know is inspect the word bachelor, and from itself, it defines itself, right? But if I say, uh, so, so a, a bachelor, so wait, sorry, is a bachelor, bachelor, like, bachelor is unmarried, this is what philosophers call an analytic statement because the predicate is, or the connection, the link is, bachelor is unmarried, the definition is contained within the word. So when I say bachelor is unmarried, this is a statement that is in a sense circular. An unmarried person is also a bachelor, by definition, unmarried male, I guess, suppose in this case, okay? Now, but if I say ball, the ball is red. That's a synthetic statement. Why? Because by simply investigating the word ball, you don't know whether or not it's red. Redness actually tells you more information about the ball in a way that the definition unmarried doesn't tell you anything new about bachelor. Now, if I say the bachelor, bachelor has blue eyes, is this a synthetic statement or a analytic statement? Synthetic, because the, the predicate adds something new to the word, all right? The predicate, redness, adds something new to the ball. You didn't know what, that the ball is red until I told you that it is red. This adds something new to your information. But unmarriedness, unmarriedness, doesn't tell you anything new about the word bachelor. So what, 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 Van Til is saying here with respect to God is he knows things analytically by virtue of himself. So in, in an analogy, right? God doesn't know things by reference to anything outside of him. By simply investing, investigating in himself, he knows things because he is the foundation of things. So things come to be by virtue of him knowing it. So there's a distinction between its necessary knowledge and its free knowledge. Necessary knowledge is knowledge of things that could be. Necessarily knowledge, uh, sorry, free knowledge is things that would be. Natural knowledge, in other words, is things that, that could be. It's possibility. Free knowledge is things that would be. It's inevitability. What God had chosen to come to pass. So some quotes just to prove to you that I'm not just making little words up, but I'm really summarizing some terms in the history of theology. <laughs> Richard Muller and Hermann Bavinck summarized necessary and, and, and free knowledge in this way. The knowledge that God must have is a necessary knowledge, but it is also natural. Notice, necessary knowledge and, free, and, and, and natural knowledge, sorry. Necessary knowledge is natural knowledge. Inasmuch as God has it by nature rather than by imposition from without or from the outside, God knows things by virtue of who he is ad intra, so to say. The knowledge that God freely has, so this free knowledge now, is a, is a knowledge that coincides with his will for the being or existence of all things ad extra. So what's the distinction between necessary knowledge and free knowledge, 
Well, necessary knowledge is what God knows by nature rather than by imposition from without. And the knowledge that God freely has is a knowledge that coincides with his will for the being or existence of all things ad extra, all things outside of God. What he freely knows to be is what he freely wills to be ad extra, outside of him. So Bavink says free knowledge relates to natural knowledge as ectype, or here relates to, free no, uh, to, to natural knowledge. What he actively knows is what he freely comes to know or wills to be from his natural knowledge or his natural will. Yeah, so when he, when he freely chooses and comes to know it, he freely chooses to bring about what he knows he could bring about. Does that make sense? So, does it make sense? No? Okay. <laughs> um, there, there, there's, an, uh, there's an analogy in, in human creation, right? So when you, let's say you're an architect and you're planning to build a house, you know all the possibilities of houses that you could build or design. And then... Um, you choose one design and you bring it about. So you freely chose out of all the possibilities of what you could bring about, choose one design and you bring it out and then you build the house, you see. So the house um, reflects what you planned it to be. And that's how God knows things. God knows things because he planned it to be. Um, he freely planned it to be. But what you're, what you're getting at is also, I think, pretty important because, because you're saying, is there a moment where there, you know, he, he decided that he chose that this would be, right? Does that make sense? Like there was a, there's a sequence where there was nothing and then he planned and then he created. In a sense, yes, that there is a logical order. Like he decreed it first before he brought it out to be. But it's not a temporal order because there wasn't a, he's not in time. So there's a sense in which these distinctions that we're making is a distinction that we have to make as human beings who have to know in a, in a sequence. But technically, in God, there's never been a sequence where he planned and then he's thinking about it and then he created. Does that make sense? It's all one eternal act. Um, so we talked two weeks ago about how the way we talk about him, because it's analogical, you know, there's a proper disjunction um, between the way we talk about him and the way he really is. So we do. So the Bible talks about how God, um, uh, God is. You know, God came down to the Tower of Babel. God came down to talk with Adam. Does that mean that God was only in the Garden and not in Tigris River? Does that make sense? So the Bible has to talk about it in this way. So God is present with Adam, but at the same time, we can't deny that He's also present in the stars and the seas and everywhere else, right? So there's a way that. The Bible talks about him that it, there's a proper disjunction between that and the way he really is. Does that make sense? Because he accommodates to our level. And so in the same way, the Bible talks about God predestining all things and God planned all things and then he created all things. So Ephesians 1.11, he predestined all things, um, blah, blah, blah. As if his predestination is sequentially or chronologically before his creation. So there was a time where God was planning, and then he created. But 
technically or properly speaking, there was never before or after in God because he's eternal. And we can't really make sense of it, but, but what, what Bhavik was also saying there, that God knows everything as a single present moment <laughs> is something we can comprehend. So, so the prehistoric ages is just as present to God as we are now because everything was known by God in one eternal act. There was no before or after. So we have to talk in these ways because we're finite creatures who, who think in this way. But properly speaking, God is not like, he's analogically revealed in, that, in, these, in this kind of talk. But it doesn't match completely with what, who he really is. Does that make sense? Sort of. You get to it. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so let me just read these out. The, what we have in the rest of the notes are really pithy summaries of everything that I was just discussing so that it's really firm in your grasp and if you want to review it later, all the definitions are there for you. So what is, again, what is God's necessary knowledge? God's necessary knowledge is the natural knowledge of God is by its very nature unsuited to being revealed to creatures. God can never be known by creatures as God knows himself, either as it concerns content and scope or as it concerns its mode. So nobody knows God the way God knows himself. Nobody knows everything that God is able to do, everything that God could do, everything that God is, because he's eternal, he's all-powerful. Um, there's a sense in which no creature could know God archetypally. No creature could know God the way that he knows himself. That's, God, that's, a, that's a characteristic of God's necessary knowledge. God's free knowledge is what he chooses to will. He knows freely that which he has chosen freely to decree and create. It's an actable knowledge which he then accommodates to creatures and freely willed by God. So, the free knowledge and will of God have their focus in what God determines. God's knowledge and God's will, of course, are ultimately one thing because God is simple. There's no real distinction between God's knowledge and his will. So, a theologian, Francis Turretin, 7th century, he says, among the communicable, or what is able to be communicated, and positive attributes, which affirm some perfection of God, there are three principal ones by which his immortal and perfectly happy life is active. Intellect, will, and power. The first belongs to the principal as directing, the second as enjoining, the third as executing. So notice, all he's saying, that's just a fancy theological way of talking about how what he freely wills to will, what he freely wills to know, is directed and then executed. And, and brings that about to existence. So when discussing God's free will, what he freely knows just is what he freely wills. Secondly, the free will of God is tied to his eternal decree. So his eternal decree is what he freely knows to be, what he freely wills to be. His free will includes that activity in and through creation, but it's not limited to that activity. God's free determination is an activity, activity of the triune God even before the foundation of the world. That's all, this is what it's referring to right here in this diagram. Okay? So that's a little summary there of necessary and free knowledge. So, how much time do we have? We have 15 minutes. Here's what we need to know. Reformed orthodoxy, or the orthodoxy of Protestantism up until a certain age, had always held that there are only 
two kinds of knowledge in God. There's the necessary and then there's the free. There's nothing in between. God knows what he could do and God knows what he would do freely. God necessarily knows what he could do because he knows himself. God knows what he would do because he freely decrees it to be. Okay? That's the two kinds of knowledge in God. Now, let me, in the last 15 minutes, just talk very briefly about Calvinism and Arminianism. Because you really needed to get through all of these things for, for this to even be intelligible, I think. Who here knows the popular debate between Calvinism and Arminianism? The one that wants to be bold and just summarize that debate for us, tell us about the, the popular conceptions. What is Arminianism in contrast to Reformed theology or Calvinism? Because what we've been teaching you is Reformed theology. It's, it's, I would say it's just Protestantism, but it's, uh, it's orthodoxy up until a certain age. But what do you know about Arminianism? Some of you are shaking your head. That's okay. No shame in that. You save yourself. Oh my goodness. Okay, that's like the worst. The worst possible definition of Arminianism is um, right. All right. So, so God, God relates to the world in such a way where He leaves it up to the creatures. Like there are free creatures roaming around, and He just kind of watches. And the way He saves people is He provides a way, like a ladder, and then He. And some people might grab onto it. Some people might not grab onto it. And he really leaves it up to um, the free creatures, right? It's, it's almost as if God is this passive onlooker. He provides the possibility of salvation, but he doesn't do anything. He just kind of watches. He doesn't want to violate your free will. That's really important, right? So uh, in Arminianism, popularly speaking, have you ever heard that God changes his mind? God, so God might change his mind. I just saw a sermon by a particular popular preacher. He actually argued that God couldn't do something unless you first had the faith that allows him to do it first. So God is, God's sovereignty is so limited that he has his hands tied behind his back unless you allow him to do something in your life. Have you, have you heard of that kind of preaching before maybe? That's very common preaching, right? Uh, or another way of putting it is, God might know what you, you would do, but he has no control. Some things just happen outside of his control. Some things are just bare chance. Um, things, things just happen outside of his control. Um, you, he can't do something uh, unless you allow him to do something. God knocks the door to your heart, and he can't come in until you open the door. All right, these are... Arminian ways of preaching or, or common preaching that we might hear that some have associated with Arminianism. And God has a plan for your life. But depending on how you do something, he might change that plan because you disobeyed him. You've heard that before? So he changes his mind all the time. He regrets in such a way where he really does make a mistake. Can God make mistakes? Good for you to say no. And, but some people would argue that Arminianism is, is a kind of theology that says that God could make mistakes. So um, 
that's what his regret means in scripture. That's what his change of mind means. That means he wished that you would do something, but because you didn't do it, he has to change his mind and you know rework his whole plan together. I've even heard that Jesus is the biggest example of that. Adam and Eve messed up. So God has to go with a plan B, Jesus Christ, right? Um, but, but I hope that seems, I think, but I think for, for a lot of us, that seems intuitive to you, right? Who is Jesus? He's kind of like a plan B. He's a savior of a broken world. That means things were broken, right? There was, so th- there's this common sense popular idea of Arminianism and some, some popular conceptions of Arminianism are, are, are as this kind of theology is preached nowadays is that God loves us so much that he gives us free will. So one of the tenets of Arminianism is free will. Like we're not that bad. We have the freedom to do good and freedom to do evil. God changes his mind. So God is changeable. God is sovereign, but he chooses to limit his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is limited. God wants to do something, but you can stop his will. So God's will can be, like his plan can be, can be stopped by human beings. Um, also that uh, you can lose your salvation. Can I say that? Christians can lose salvation. So you, you, could, you could be saved and then not saved. Okay? Would you hear that? That kind of description of... Have you heard sermons like that? Maybe some of you haven't. Then that's okay. But have you heard sermons like that? Maybe. God uh, wants you to be saved, but because he, you disobeyed in a particular way and then you stopped confessing your faith in Christ, he, he can't do anything about it, so he, he lets you go according to your free will. Yeah. But, but I think their focus is it's because God is not in control of your free will. His hands are tied behind his back. Like, he, he can't do anything about that. Like, you have to maintain your salvation in a sense. Does that make sense? But these are popular ideas. And in fact, let's not, let's not even call this Arminianism. Let's just say this is, this is just what's the popular notion of the Christian God today in the 21st century, right? Um, you hear sermons about this all the time. Does any of you want to, want to give any anecdotes about anything that you... But this sounds familiar to you? Okay. Okay, so this, this is uh, a popular kind of preaching, and it's sometimes associated with Arminianism. Now, I want just briefly to say, remember in the first talk, I talked about the necessity of retrieval. We're, we're talking thing, about things like archetypal, ectypal knowledge, necessary and free knowledge, ad intra, ad extra, simplicity, because this is the way all of Christian orthodoxy had really talked about God for centuries. And I want to I say that this kind of preaching that often gets attributed to Arminius or Jacob Arminius, Arminianism, 
not from the poor Armenians, which are which is a ethnic group. Okay, don't don't impute the Armenians. This is Armenia, it's not the Armenians. Okay, so it's um, A R M I N I U S, not A R M E N I U S, not the Armenians, but the Arminius followers of our Jacob Arminius. Okay, anyway, I just want to show you very briefly that. Oftentimes, this kind of theology gets associated with Arminianism or the following of, of Jacob Arminius' theology. But Jacob Arminius was too classical, was too orthodox to agree with any of this. There's a real sense in which he would disagree with the way his theology is presented today. That Jacob Arminius actually grew up within the Protestant upbringing that he grew up in, which still affirmed a lot of the classical terminologies that we've actually forgotten, right? So what passes off as Arminian theology today would be repudiated by Jacob Arminius. So in other words, Jacob Arminius was too reformed to be Arminian. I just want to say, he would recommend the works of John Calvin. His dates are 1560 to 1609. If you've been to CCC, he was Dutch, by the way. Uh, If you've been to CCC, you've heard of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is, uh, was written in 1563. So Arminius, Heidelberg Catechism was one of the standards of the Reformed Protestant faith in the Netherlands that demarcated what the Reformed belief, the Protestants believe, in contrast to what the Roman Catholics believed. Okay? So Arminius grew up confessing the Heidelberg Catechism and also confessing the Belgic Confession, which was written in 1561. So Arminius was nursed in this way. He was taught by uh, Theodore Beza, who was a direct disciple of Calvin. There's just some historical background for you. So Arminius was ordained in the Reformed Protestant Church of the Netherlands at the time. And he held to the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. For those of you who know what that means, that means he, for you to be ordained, in the Reformed Church, you needed to confess a particular confession of faith. So at CCC, at our church, if you wanted to become an elder or a deacon at our church, you had to believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a document from 1646, which summarizes the Reformed Protestant faith. Okay? So you can't just be an elder and not be in agreement with our theology. You actually have to agree with our theology for you to be an elder. That gives us accountability. That means I or Tezar don't get to decide whatever theology we get to preach. We have to be in unity. I won't preach something differently from Tezar. We might have our different personalities, different things to emphasize, but we would agree on the fundamentals. Does that make sense? Um, So pastors in all Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, had to agree with the same standards of faith. So the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession was a standard of faith for you to be ordained in the Protestant churches in the Netherlands in this time, of Arminius' day. And he, in good conscience, subscribed to the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism of his time. See, so, so he, was, he grew up in the Reformed world, grew up in the heels of the Reformation, and would recommend Calvin to his students, was taught by Calvin's student himself. And so... He, 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 he had differences. I'm not saying that he didn't have any differences. He didn't hold to anything like this at all. But he, 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 he had differences with the Reformed faith, but those differences are still very small compared to what passes as Arminian theology today. Like the way people preach today, and, and what we would identify as Arminian theology, 
would be something that Arminius himself wouldn't have recognized. Okay? So most Arminians today, for example, would have never heard of God's simplicity. Now, just one example, right? God is without parts. God never develops. God never changes because God is simple. God doesn't take on new parts and loses parts. God doesn't change his mind and then change his mind again, right? God is simple. Most preachers that some people would label as Arminian today would preach in these sort of ways and would have never heard of God's simplicity. Which is, again, as we saw in, in, in lecture one, was something that people took for granted in the Protestant and Catholic world up until the 19th century, right? So Arminius did too. Look at what Arminius, this is the words of Arminius himself. Here's what he says about simplicity. Simplicity is a super eminent mode of the essence of God. Like, he basically grew up learning about the simplicity of God, by which it is free from all composition and off component parts, whether sensible or intelligible. Free from composition, because free from external cause. You see that? Nothing outside of God determines God, which is interesting. Because free from internal cause, in other words, God isn't driven like we're driven by our emotions, right? Sometimes we get emotional, we would say, and then we do things like against our best interests, against our best intelligence. But God is not emotional either, right? When he expresses something, it's never because he, he doesn't choose it. So he's free from external cause, free from component parts, free from internal cause. And the essence of God, therefore, does not consist of material, integral, and quantitative parts, neither of matter and form, nor of kind of difference, nor of subject and accident, nor of form and the thing formed, nor of individual substance and nature, not of potency and act, not of essence and being. Therefore, God is his own essence and his own being. Like if you heard an Arminian theologian today, and he says something like this, you're going to make the link, this is a reformed church. So they're talking about divine simplicity in these ways, right? This would have been part and parcel of what he grew up with, right? Most Arminians today, or what comes off as Arminian theology today, it's a caricature of what Arminians ought to believe according to what Arminius actually taught. So notice, if you met someone who talked in this way, wouldn't you immediately think, wow, this guy is super reformed. But, but that's how Arminius talked. So would Arminius believe that God is changeable? No. Look at what he says. God is immutable or unchangeable so that no shadow of change falls or can fall to him. The one who feels or speaks otherwise is a blasphemer. You, you see that? Arminius did not approve of anyone speaking about God changing his mind. He would argue that someone changing his mind is a blasphemer. Unskilled is the one who says any such things from which the mutability of God can be inferred. So don't affirm the mutability of God. And don't even affirm things that you might infer that God is changeable or mutable. And predestination. Oftentimes, Arminian theology is characterized as someone who simply denies predestination. Like God doesn't predestine anything. He just knows the future. He doesn't predestine anything. Not so with Arminius. He actually argued that Arminianism, Ar Arminius himself, sorry, actually argued that predestinarianism or some form of predestination had to be affirmed. The dogma of predestination and its opposite reprobation or God's eternal decision to allow some to perish is taught and emphasized in the scriptures, for which reason it is also necessary. But it must be seen which and what kind of predestination is that it is treated in scriptures as necessary and which is called the foundation of our salvation. So 
just from that quote, you realize that Arminius affirmed that predestination is a foundation of our salvation. So his disagreement with Reformed theology is not that there is such a thing as predestination. Of course there is, he would argue. And in fact, he would argue it's the, it's the foundation of our salvation. But it's about what kind of predestination. So Arminius believed God's simplicity. He believed God's immutability. He even believed that there is such a thing as predestinarianism, as, as predestination, because it's taught in the scriptures. So some people today would shirk at even the thought of predestination, and they would call themselves Arminians. Arminius would shirk at them. He would not at all agree with that kind of talk. So, I don't have time to go through the rest of these arguments because we're out of time now. But if you just read through the notes um, in your own time, and I disagree with Arminian theology even here, even in the best presentation I've written with what Arminius himself believed, I would disagree with them. But oftentimes, Arminian theology today would say that God emphasizes our free will and prioritizes human-centeredness so much, human beings so much, that he gave us free will, he doesn't predestine anything, everything is just kind of he let go, you know, and then, and then he allows you to do whatever you want to do, and he, he can't do anything unless you allow him to do that. Arminian theology, in other words, is presented today as a kind of man-centered, um, anthropocentric model of theology that emphasizes people's free wills over God's predestinarianism and God's absoluteness, God's simplicity. But actually, if you actually looked at the debates that Arminius had in the historical context against the reform in the 1580s to, the 1609, to, sorry, to from the 1580s to 1609 especially, you get this argument from Arminius that never really emphasized anthropocentrism, that never really emphasized a human-centered theology. Rather, his argument against reformed theology was in defense of divine simplicity. He was actually motivated by a very high view of God, a view of God that he held in common with the Reformed. And he had the same doctrine of sin as the Reformed. He actually believed in total depravity. Did you know that? So, there is no sense in which Arminius' theology was a man-centered theology. Rather, he argued from divine simplicity. And he argued from the glory of God. He would also argue that the end of creation, or, or the purpose of creation, is for God's glory. Not for man's glory. Not for man's love. But for God's glory. Those are very reformed things. In fact, I would argue, if Arminius was preaching at your church today, you would think he's a reformed theologian. There's some differences, of course. But what I'm trying to say is, what passes as Arminian theology today isn't really Arminius' theology. And Arminius, because he lived before the Enlightenment, before the need for retrieval, grew up in the, in the universal tradition of the church, talked about God in, in ways that are very much in common with Reformed theology, even though there are still significant differences between them. And I've, I would have gotten into those differences, but we don't have the time. Uh, but you can take a look at those notes yourself. Okay, any last questions before we close? Yeah, so yeah, so just one thing that makes him not reformed. He did believe that you could lose your salvation. He did believe you could lose your salvation. He did believe that um 
again, this is where we we're going to go, but I, I won't have time to elaborate on this. He argued for a third category between necessary knowledge and free knowledge called middle knowledge. And uh, we don't have time to get into that. But notice his arguments against Reformed theology is very much rooted in the tradition. Does that make sense? Like it was an intra-traditioned debate. So, uh, for example, uh, some, some people would uh, debate, is uh, Donald Trump a good representation of republicanism or not? And then, okay, they would, right? Some people might, but there are other Republicans who might disagree with that. I would say it's an intra-Republican debate. Does that make sense? Like, they might disagree uh, with, with aspects of Trump's leadership, but they won't disagree on fundamental tenets of the Republican ideals. Does that make sense? It's not a debate between Republicans and Democrats. It's an intra-Republican debate. They're assuming common rules, common language, common traditions, right? Arminianism, or our, the, the theology of Arminius, in his own context, assumed the language of orthodoxy, assumed the language of what the church has taught for centuries. Does that make sense? Like, he would not recognize the, the popular Arminian theologies of today because they've stepped outside of the bounds of orthodox language about God. So they don't know what simplicity is. They don't know what necessary and free knowledge is. Like Arminius is assuming the definitions of free and necessary knowledge. Like if you met, a, if you met Arminius himself or an Arminian in the 17th century, you wouldn't be like, well, you never heard about the natural knowledge of God. They, they would be quoting natural and free knowledge of God at you, right? Like that would just be an assumed thing. Like they, they grew up in Sunday school, like being taught that, you see what I mean? So they assume all these categories and we're debating on the basis of these categories because they argue that these categories helpfully present what scripture teaches. But what has happening today in the debates between Arminianism, who teaches this thing, these things, and Reformed theology, has forgotten that theological heritage and therefore isn't any longer intra-Orthodox debate. Orthodox just means um, common faith, right? Common knowledge, common, common heritage but rather something outside of the pale of it. Patrick? Yeah. Right. I think most churches actually are very comfortable with this theology. At least, at least in Asia, I don't know what you grew up with, but I think most churches are very much comfortable with this theology. I think it's the most intuitive theology, and it's actually a, a rationalist form of theology. Like, Arminius might define sovereignty in a particular way, but he would never say it's limited. He would never say God is, unchange uh, is, is changeable. Sorry, um, He wouldn't even say that technically we have free will because we are totally depraved. He would say we have freed will, and we'll talk about prevenient grace, who has a different understanding of grace in between common grace and special grace. So there's just a lot of terms that he assumed. So we have a lot of work even just to get back to like the old theological debates that, that they would have in the academies and in the churches in the past. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, help us now grow in humility. Help us be amazed at the transcendence of God and help us now glorify you living in obedience and living in wisdom.
and in humility because you've chosen us despite the fact that we were sinners and we scorned your will against us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.